You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Lauren Oliver. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Ryan Stevenson filling in for Brian Humphrey. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With... Yes, 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us here at the Roundtable Podcast to spend some time talking with the creative samurai who slash their way through the challenges <laughs> of writing as if it were nothing but cheap bamboo armor. And we're talking <laughs> about the literary sword skills and the swordmanship necessary to be such a master of the craft in the hopes that we can just sort of glean some technique for ourselves from the conversation as we go along. I love these episodes. These are always my favorite. Oh, me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. We will all be literary ronin by the time yes. this is all said and done, right? So, um, and before we dive into this, Rye, as always, thank you, man, for stepping up. Uh, Brian, Brian stepped out for some milk, and I saw you sitting outside the studio, and I said, hey, Rye, want to do a show? And Rye was cool enough to step on in. So. With my big cardboard sign, we'll podcast for food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and there's some chips for you on the table over there, That's, Thanks. All right, man. Uh, uh, dude, I am, I, I am so excited about this particular episode because I feel like I'm breaking news. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm introducing, I, I found out about... Uh, uh, our guest host and the, and the the project the the company that they're a part of completely unrelated to the whole podcast community. A, a, a buddy of mine sent me an email about a company on Fast Company, uh, an article that that was relevant to what we do, and I checked it out and it's like, no freaking way. And I said, I got to get these people on the show. Uh, so Ryan, let me introduce you to the awesomeness of what we're doing here. Okay. Um, I, I actually, uh, I had actually three introductions to give, uh, before we got into our 20 minutes with, but I only, uh, I only have two cause sadly half of this dynamic duo, uh, uh, had to call out ill for, for this particular segment. But now before everyone freaks out and, and starts prepping for an hour long intro from Dave, and I, I understand that I I've actually exercised profound restraint in my usual stalkerish introductions. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, today we actually have the distinct pleasure of having joining us, uh, one of the founders and evil geniuses of paper lantern lit Lauren Oliver, uh, her companion and cohort co- companion in crime. Blech. Her companion in crime, Lexa Hillier, could not be here, sadly, Uh, uh, but we will soldier on because Lauren has awesomeness all her own and Paper Lantern Lit is just huge. So, um, Ryan, I'd like to introduce Lauren and then introduce what happens when people like Lauren and Lexa get into the same room, okay? Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay, so Lauren Oliver, NYC born and bred. Her parents were both literature professors and fostered a family culture where making up stories, drawing, painting, dancing around in costumes and spending hours in front of the computer every day mulling over the difference between chortling and chuckling was considered (laughs) business as usual. As a child, she loved reading and hated when a good story ended. So she would take it upon herself to write the sequel just to keep the characters alive in her imagination imagination she was cranking out fanfic before fanfic was cool uh she contemplated many careers including ballet dancer uh but at college at the university of chicago she pursued literature and philosophy uh ultimately she was lured back to the big apple uh by the mfa program in creative writing at nyu now at the same time 
overachiever that she is, she took a position at Penguin Books, editing their YA novel line. Uh, uh, now, while she claims that her sole contribution to the company was to flout the dress code at every opportunity and break the printer, uh, hopefully not at the same time, but one never knows, uh, uh, it was also here where she met Lexa Hillier, her friend, and started writing the novel that would ultimately be optioned by Fox. Uh, she moves quick, our Lauren. In two years, she went from a mouse-infested apartment to New York Times best-selling author with two works, uh, Before I Fall and Delirium, both being optioned for film, and having Time magazine list the sequel to Delirium, titled Pandemonium, as the most anticipated sequel. Uh, wow. Now, yeah, exactly, right? Now, sure, she puts ketchup on her tomatoes and, <laughs> and, and, and hates bananas and practical shoes. And yeah, she read A Game of Thrones and Dune at the same time. But friends, she's worked hard for these eccentricities. I encourage you, please let her have them. Uh, now, Lexa Hillier, Lauren Oliver, they get together. Now, both of these distinctive individuals hold a deep and abiding love of story in their hearts, and they wrap it up with a hearty disdain for convention and the status quo. Mm. Now, yes, oh, get ready for this, bud. They both longed for the freedom to just get swept away in a fabulous story idea and then actually see that idea come to fruition. And they also lamented the fact that so many astonishing writers were languishing in the mists of obscurity, their transformative prose confined to their notebooks. And before you ascribe any of that prose to either Lauren or Lexa, it's not them, it's me. Only I can come up with purple prose like that. So in, <laughs> in 2010, they launched... Paper Lantern Lit. They call it a literary incubator. They brainstorm story ideas, working out plot, character arcs, outlines, all of it. Then they go on the hunt for the perfect up-and-coming writer to bring that story to life. They, they have an extensive submissions pile to dig through, but they're always looking for new authorial voices to foster and introduce to the world. Now, once the book is written, Paper Lantern Lit approaches top-shelf publishers to get the novel sold, produced, and onto bookstore shelves. Now, Rye, it's brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody wins. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. New writers, they receive the mentorship and education that can only be provided by a couple of literary veterans, and they get paid for it. Publishers love it because those same seasoned professionals are making sure the quality stays high and the deadlines are met. And Lexa and Lauren get to do what they love, brainstorming story ideas. So why we didn't have these people on the yeah. first episode <laughs> of the Roundtable podcast. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's a mystery <laughs> lost in time. Uh, but friends, we're making up for it now. So please welcome to the big and comfy chair at the round table, Lauren Oliver of Paper Lantern Lit. Lauren, I, 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 I can only imagine the maelstrom that is your daily schedule. Uh, so we so dearly appreciate you making the time to, to be on the show. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really thrilled to be on the show and thank you for having me. I am lamenting the lack of Lexa 
um, next to me, but I've just poured a glass of wine and put it put it where she would normally be sitting. And it's almost <laughs> as if she's here. Um, and I'm really excited because, you know, this podcast and talking to young writers about story and story development is exactly why we started our company. Um, you know, I had attended, actually both Lex and I attended different master's uh, programs for creative writing. Lex is a poet. She's actually one of the best new poets of 2012. Mm. Um, and one thing that I really noticed in MFA programs, which is kind of now, you know, the venue by which young writers learn about craft, if there is any, other than podcasts like yours. Um, one thing that I noticed is that, you know, there's a lot of attention and detail in MFA programs about the use of metaphor, character development, juxtaposition, um, but there's really no discussion of story. Mm. So when I was in my master's program, I'm quite f- proud of this fact, so I always repeat it. I actually wrote an 800-page novel, um, and oh, I actually crap. wrote it. <laughs> That's a doorstop. I know. I wrote an 800-page novel twice, so meaning I wrote 1,600 pages in which not a single interesting thing happens. Um, and I'm kind of proud of that because it's mathematically improbable. Um, <laughs> I didn't know how to tell a story, and I almost thought it was almost it was almost treated in master's programs, MFA programs, as an ancillary concern, not the concern of, quote-unquote, a serious writer. But of course, you know, the reason that people originally started writing books and before they wrote books, they started telling each other stories is precisely for that, is for the story, is for the structure, is for these archetypal ways that um, that story works and grabs us and, and hooks us. Absolutely. Um, hook us. So so that's why, actually, it was my training as an editor that, that taught me how to really start telling a story. And that's why Lexa and I really started the company. So we would be able to not just impart that knowledge to other people, but really engage in it still and engage with our own learning and their learning at the same time. Well, and it's completely innovative. I, 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 I yeah. have not heard of any other literary incubators out there in the world. It's, it's brilliant. And, and I, Lauren, I know that uh, because much of our listenership are those very up-and-coming authors that you tend to, to draw from for, for writing the stories you guys come up with, I was wondering, could you take just a moment and walk our listeners through... Uh, uh, paper lantern lit from the writer's perspective uh, uh, and give them just a taste of, of that process that they would experience. Were they so lucky to be selected by you and Alexa for, for writing one of the stories? Yeah, I think one of the things that really distinguishes our company and, and one of the, well, some misconceptions that kind of exist from the perspective of the writer, um, there are these companies, quote unquote, called packagers um, that tend to, uh, develop series or very commercial concepts and look for writers to kind of churn them out. And in, in those companies, although they've done some incredible work and we've certainly learned from them, the writer is actually not that important. They're, they're often looking for very commercial slash generic voices and, and they tend to, sometimes they sub several writers in for writing a single book. Um, the writer is a little bit invisible in those projects. Lexa and I at Paper Lantern Lit, I mean, we're both writers as well, and we our sympathies are with the writers. So I think the difference is, is that we really look for, for unique voices, um, and we do a wide variety of projects to kind of bring those voices um, to, to show them at their best advantage. So we've done books that are funny middle grade books. We've done very literary 
teen adult crossover and we've done commercial stuff. I mean, we really kind of base it, base our projects and base our, uh, our fluid work process kind of based on the, the author's strength and, and their development. But from the author's perspective, I mean, essentially, if you work with us, it's almost like kind of a paid MFA program in that, you know, you submit, we work with you very intensely and rigorously to teach you the basics of story development and you submit chapters to us where we can get really detailed feedback on your prose. I mean, we often do style guides for writers. We give reading lists. I mean, it's really oh, wow. intense. Um, and we're, because we're really invested in all of our authors and all of our authors are like members of an extended and slightly dysfunctional family. Um, <laughs> functional, so I guess I could start saying, but, um, and we, we, you know, we really, and so that would be kind of the first book. We, we typically, we're very proud of the fact that most of our authors tend to want to stay with us for multiple projects. Um, there is no, you are not required to stay with us. We don't make you sign your life away. You, our authors are often simultaneously writing their own books um, and they benefit from the instruction we give them to complete, let's say, novels that have been languishing and they haven't been able to really kind of um, form. Um, many of our authors who come to us unagented get agents after they're with us because they learn. They learn and they benefit mm. from what, what we're teaching them. So in the first, typically it works in the first book, you know, there's a lot more guidance, a lot more structure. And then as our relationship with the author evolves, the author starts having more and more capacity to, to you know, structure stories and brainstorm stories on their own. And we kind of take step back and, and give just a helping hand where, where necessary. And our goal is always that, you know, eventually over the course of two to three books, the author is so kind of confident and well-versed now in, in story structure that they're able to actually go off on their own and spread their wings and fly. That's why we picture <laughs> our authors like tiny little baby birds and we grow them into, to, you know, big adult birds who can go off and hopefully not fly straight into a window. Um, so <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> Although in New York City, sometimes it's tough. There's a lot of buildings, a lot of buildings mm. to fly into. <laughs> oh, Lauren, I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of the stuff that uh, Paper Lantern Lit is currently working on uh, has, has, has been YA, and you yourself have, have distinguished yourself in, in the young adult market. And mm -hmm. I know that Paper Lantern Lit is exploring other genres, but I was, I was curious if you would speak for just a moment on what do you think the value of YA is? Uh, uh, what is uh, the, the gold that it brings to the culture? And, and from a writer's perspective, how does one fire on those cylinders? How does one seize those bits that really are the, the value of the genre to the readers and to the culture? Well, um, you know, I think the writer, novels are, people read books essentially to learn about themselves. Um, and for a long time, there really was no literature that reflected specifically um, the drama and tumultuousness of the teenage years. I mean, I think one of the things that's really valuable about young YA is it's in the it's in the teen years that actually people start having kind of a sense of self. Um, before that, uh, there's no you know when kids don't really have a strong sense of self awareness, which leads to some amazing capacities for 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 
amazing opportunities to write children's children's literature, which it can be imaginative and crazy. And I've actually written and published two middle grade books as well. But um, but in the teen years, people really start to um, to to think about identity, to think about who they are, how they're defined, whether they're defined by you know family constraints and and their social network and and all of this and and tend to also start to rebel against previous labels that have been given to them which is incredibly i mean it's incredibly fertile place for the imagination to go i mean our first attempts to figure out who we are i mean figuring out who you are what could be better kind of um fodder for writing a novel oh absolutely and also i mean you know people it's funny people tend to remember they're both the traumas and triumphs of their high school years, even more than they do like their college years and early twenties later on in life. I mean, there's something about that time, perhaps because it's so emergent, perhaps because everything starts to be questioned that, that really, really sticks in people's minds. And it's when we have a lot of first experiences, um, first time you fall in love, first time you really get your heart broken, whether it's by a person that you're romantically involved with or a best friend or a parent who disappoints you. I mean, it's a time when we really start to challenge all of these beliefs that just in childhood go um, unexamined. Sure. So it, it's just an incredibly fertile place for a writer to mine. Um, and also, I mean, I like teens because, like, I like writing for teens because teens really do have a big, strong bullshit meter. Um, <laughs> at least how people are putting on. Um, voices when they're when they're trying to uh, they they can really distinguish between cliches of the high school life between what feels real and what doesn't um, and so you know although in many ways teens are completely uh, incomprehensible to me <laughs> they're <laughs> real readers and they're really passionate about things that they read and that they connect to and of course I mean one of the reasons I started writing YA was that. In those years of such tumult, when you're you're first starting to look at the world critically and discover that there's a lot to be critical about, you know, it's so important for people of that age to have something that they can hold onto, that they can project themselves into and see themselves held by. Um, and that's what teen literature does. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Lauren Oliver after this brief promotional break. We interrupt this program to bring you an important message. Are you a writer? Do you wish you could make your own audiobook? Then you should be listening to PodioRookie.com, the podcast that helps you turn your novel into a professional-sounding audiobook. Any questions? I was just wondering... If the professor on Gilligan's Island can make a radio out of coconuts, why doesn't he just fix the hole in the boat? Any other questions? Good. Join us each week as author, songwriter, and recording engineer Ken Crawford helps you record and produce professional-sounding audiobooks. Subscribe to the free weekly podcast at podiorookie.com. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Lauren Oliver. 
You're bringing up a lot of really interesting points here. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still hung up on a lot of the things you said right off the beginning, uh, specifically that concept that, um, you know, the ability to plot, the ability to generate a plot or a cohesive plot that moves from point A to point B isn't necessarily something that's being taught effectively right now, although there's a lot of focus on things like grammar and whatnot. And uh, you inspired the thought that when we talk about talent, uh, in a writer, generally speaking, we're talking about that ability to plot or to tell a story. I don't too often hear someone make a statement that someone's a very talented grammar person <laughs> um, or that, you know, they have good sentence structure. But yes, they are a talent when it comes to plotting. So so with that in mind and this plotting process that you've got and then attached to this conversation we just had about different genres, I'm curious, when when you sit down to start this plotting process how does it vary between these different genres considering how in depth you have a consideration for things like YA? I see Paper Lantern Lit has a lot of romance. Does the mm-hmm. plotting process vary for those two different genres? And if so, can you address that? Um, you know, to be honest, the, the good thing about plotting is actually, although it's always different, I mean, it's always difficult, at least for me, and mm-hmm. it does obviously assume incredible, you know, a variety of forms in terms of its specificities. Plot structure is actually pretty con- consistent between narratives. I mean, there's really only about four or five structures to books that are that are even kind of at all common, and certainly in the Western world. Um, and so, learning what plot is, learning that story is about conflict and desire and want, um, and how to unpack that over the course of a book. It's actually something that, you know, again, to apply that knowledge, if you're, you know, it does, uh, it's not just like you learn it once and then it's paid by numbers, you slap a plot on top of a narrative, right. all has to be organic. So it's not that it, it, there's no kind of difficulty or struggle, but no, I mean, in terms of what a story is, um, I find that it's actually remarkably consistent about John- between genres, which is what enables us to do a wide variety of stuff and what has enabled me as a writer to do, um, to write for a variety of age groups as well. Um, it's kind of the key and with it, you can unlock all of these different worlds. And actually, if you look at, you can look at books as widely variant as, you know, a a romance targeted for whomever, you know, middle-aged women to Dune to (laughs) book and actually story-wise they might, you know, they're probably all pretty parallel in terms Mm -hmm. of the basic driving engine, narrative engine of the books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the interesting thing there, too, is it sounds like you really free yourself up with that in mind uh, to to be blind almost to those barriers that are genre. You can can plot something and it can fit here, it can fit there. Yeah, that's a great point. Lauren, I wanted to ask you, and and I got to ask, because Ryan and I and and my usual co-host, Brian, and, and any of the other individuals we've had on the show, Inevitably, during our workshops, somebody goes, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and I wonder, do you and Lexa and your team, do you have ooh moments? Do you guys actually ooh around the table? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we ah, we throw food. I mean, we get, we get really into it. I mean, you know, what we do for a living is make up stories and, and write. It's the best job in the world. Um, and we love it. That's why we do it. Um, and that's why we spend eight to 12 hours a day working (laughs) at times, you know, (laughs) are there air quotes around that working? Because it sounds like an awful (laughs) lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, and, but you know, I mean, it's a lot of fun, but it's work. And I think that's also something that is important about creativity and, and writing in general is that 
you may love it, but it's work. And if you're going to get good at it, you have to study. You have to you have to learn more and more about stories. You have to read really broadly. You have to challenge yourself to get better and deeper. Um, and and that you know requires a lot of effort. Um, sure. You know. Well- and I'm curious, we, and, and yes, absolutely, those, those ooh moments, and those ah ha and the, and the throwing of the food, all of that stuff, um, those are the moments that you really kind of live for and, and that really, I think, charge the emotional engines, the creative engines to just keep exploring and keep digging. Have you ever given any thought to what, what makes those ah moments and, and, and how we can maximize those or, or foster those so that they happen more often? Yeah, I haven't given a lot of thought to that. I mean, there's actually actually a bunch of literature about this now, which is kind of interesting. I think that actually, you know, writing happens on two levels. I think there's a conscious level which we really work and strive. Like, for example, when I have a new idea, it's usually an aha moment. But before I have a new idea, I usually go through an intense period of several months where I'm writing and half discarding ideas that are kind of not gripping me in the same way that an aha idea would. But I still have to go through those months of exhausting basically the conscious brain. There's there's a theory now that in order to have aha moments, you have to exhaust the conscious brain and then the unconscious will take over and you will get kind of a breakthrough, hmm. which is why in very heated discussions, you'll be talking, 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 trying to unpuzzle every single permutation of how this plot could work, but something's still not working. And when your conscious mind, this theory says, which I kind of happen to believe, that when your conscious mind is exhausted, at some point your subconscious mind will kind of take over. And that's when you have breakthroughs that, you know, cohesively put together all of the different jigsaw puzzles. And so that's why, you know, the, the work element of it isn't just kind of a platitude working and spending a lot of time trying to unpack and unpuzzle like a jigsaw, you know, puzzle, um, your, your own novel is necessary in order for you to occasionally, you know, have these moments where the rational facilities and all this stuff has been exhausted. All of the possible solutions you've seen have been exhausted. And then the unseen ones kind of take over. You know, um, you're, you're absolutely right. And Ryan, think about it in all the workshops that we've done. The, yep. the, the, the froth really doesn't start until about 15, 20 minutes in, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I should just start recording, hit the record button at the first, <laughs> aha, and then carry forward from there. But, well, you know, the- they also say a lot of aha moments happen, for example, when people are in the shower or running. So you could say in order to maximize them, you should work out a lot and take showers. <laughs> Good um, point. But, you know, those are both times when the conscious mind is typically very relaxed. So, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there's a, there's another allegory or a connection that can be drawn here too. Cause uh, while you were talking about that, got me thinking, yeah, we, Dave, you're right. We have a lot of aha moments here and there, there's usually one right at that halfway part. It's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking about that too. Someone will say something and all of a sudden you can hear everyone else's mic kind of go, <gasps> cause they, they <laughs> click into that too and they want to dive in and they want to eat that, that idea up and just kind of get it in, get it, get the idea processed. So um, the interesting thing though, that I think is further to the aha moment is, I don't want to call it the uh moment, but <laughs> that moment where someone has an idea, but when we're working in a group like this or in a group like Paper Lantern Lit, um, that idea might not necessarily fly. It might be a, for me, but it's a, uh, for someone else. How, how do you move through that process when you're working and plotting in a group just through conversation and just get it out like you were talking about? Or is there times where you've kind of had to wrestle with that? That's a great question. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's very important as a writer to understand that you have to, I mean, you know, 
one of the things I actually think I learned from my master's program was when to accept criticism and when to reject it. I think it's the most important thing to learn for a, one of the most important things a writer can learn. Um, invariably, there are there is feedback that is very difficult to hear, that is very critical for you to hear, and that is important. And then there's also there are also moments where you know, people say something or have a criticism of an idea and it's actually important to ignore it. And that intuition, that skill, being able to kind of decipher between the two, that's really, that's difficult. And it actually can only be, um, it can only be kind of fostered by having lots of workshops and discussions with people and, and having your ideas occasionally, the ideas that you think are great, you know, having people actually say, no, that that's, that doesn't work for this project or, you know, it's not the strongest thing you can do. And it's always, you know, it's always hurtful. And yet at the same time, if you're, you know, really what the goal is, is to generate the best story, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, you can't, you know, there's a famous quote, you have to, as a writer, you have to kill your darlings. And the importance of having other eyes on it is that, you know, other people aren't so attached to your darlings as you are, sure. you know. Um, I do think that, I mean, that happens all the time at our meetings. I mean, all the time. And it's just something over time you t- you get a little bit less possessive over the idea that comes. Just because you had the idea doesn't mean it's necessarily the best idea or the way to go forward. And I think that actually the brainstorming we do is so important because it really elevates the discussion over time. I mean, over time, we're all killing each other's darlings. So, so <laughs> is is, you know, the best permutation of what, what the story could be. Sure. I always say just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, So, um, Lauren, in in our closing minutes here, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. Um, I was wondering if you would speak first about uh, uh, what you consider the strength that you bring to Paper Lantern Lit and how you foster that strength or that, that, that talent or that asset. And then if you would, since Lexa couldn't be here, would you be so kind as to, from your perspective, uh, what do you think Lexa's strength is and how do you see her fostering that? Do you, can, can, you, can you rock that for a couple minutes? Yeah, I, it's funny though because Lexa and I actually, we really are truly wonderful partners as well as being friends and we actually often, we often, it's kind of fun, we often switch back and forth. I mean, I think that actually part of Lexa and my strength together as a partnership is that we kind of fit around each other and, and so so what might be my strength at one point becomes her strength later on and vice versa. But I think my strength, um, other than the ability to think of strange monsters, I think I'm, I'm very, (laughs) I think I'm, um, you know, I think my strength would be, it's hard to say. Um, (laughs) um, I think my strength is in the generation of kind of sparks, images, ideas that can subsequently be turned into books. I think that's one of them. Um, I have a lot of ideas for novels. I've really trained myself to have ideas for books by challenging myself almost every day. Every time I see something interesting, by thinking, how would I turn that into the story? Could be turned into a book. Is that a novel? Is that a novel or would it only be a short story? I mean, I really try to mentally challenge myself. That's something I learned from my who carries a notebook around and, and has hundreds of book ideas written down. Um, and so, so it's, it's, it's a kind of mental flexibility that I try to practice. Um, and I think at this point too, I'm, I'm pretty good at doing major blocking of structure, um, like major plot blocking kind of stuff. Um, I think that 
for Lexa, I think her strength is she really understands emotional impact, which is actually not something that's uh, independent of story structure. It's very, very critically wound up in story structure. Um, and she really understands people's needs and wants. And that also is incredibly critical part of story structure that kind of is story structure or at least runs parallel to it. Um, and so she's able to think incredibly well about characters and what their journeys will be over the course of a book. And, um, and she makes sure that we never go far in a story without um, having the journey of its characters be an integral part of, of the story, which, you know, actually forms the backbone of the story. Sure. So, um, and the way that she, uh, she, she, um, practices or, or stays on top of that is, I mean, I don't know, you'd have to see Lexa. She's a long blonde hair. She's a poet and she like acts like somebody dying of consumption. And, <laughs> and, um, and she understands people. Um, and she's interested in people and interested in the self. So, you know, I think between the two of us, she's kind of the more like sensitive, poetic one. And I'm kind of more of the, you know, act one, act two, act three breaks and let's get moving. So, so between the two of us, we, we, we really fit. That sounds like an awesome team. It's yeah. an awesome team. And given, given the success that, that paper lantern lit has already experienced just in the few years that the doors have been opened, uh, I, I can only imagine uh, 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 the glory and fabulosity to come uh, <laughs> as, as the years unfold. Guys, I, I hate to say it, but uh, uh, I, the clock on the table just had an aha moment and, and <laughs> flipped me off and walked out of the room. So um, I'm thinking we're out of time. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for, for making the time. I'm so sorry Alexa couldn't be here, but but we are so grateful that you were able to to share so generously of some so much awesome ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Ryan, what, what was the what was the what was your aha moment from uh, uh, from that last twenty minutes? What I'm still hung that? up on that idea from the start because it just seems so bloody true. I did have an aha moment in my yeah. head that we're we're not teaching plot. We being a you know social structure, not not you and I, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Plot isn't something we're teaching effectively, and I'm starting to think that you know what that's something I'm going to take away from this. I'm going to yeah. sit down and spend a little less time worrying about my uh, my grammar and a little more time working about telling a story that doesn't suck. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, bam. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Grammar is for like the third draft. Yeah. <laughs> you know, screw that. For me, it was it was just the notion. Lauren said, uh, uh, "We people read books to learn about themselves," mm -hmm. and that really caught in my head. Uh, uh, that you know, we, as as writers, we're we're so caught up. I, well, no, not we. I am so caught up in giving people a really good time or a really good story and a really good adventure, but. I think it's critical to understand why people find a story so good and why they think an adventure is so good. And it's because it showed them something about themselves. And the only way we can do that as writers is if we work in kind and show something of ourselves and, and be as painfully uh, authentic and honest as we can in the stories that we're telling, even the farces and the comedies and the weird stuff. Uh, that honesty is is the gold that that runs through everything. That's fabulous. Great twenty minutes with holy crap! Oh, and dear friends, thank you so much for for tuning in and hitting that play button as always. 
Um, I, I know you're sitting there scribbling away and hitting the rewind button. What did, what did, what did she say? Give me that one more time. Thank God this stuff is recorded and eternal in the, in the interwebs. Uh, uh, but if you're, if you're feeling the good vibe, the best way you can pay that forward is by spreading the word. Let folks know about the round table. We're out on iTunes. So many of you have given wonderful reviews and we are so grateful for that. Thank you. If you haven't been out that way, feel free to add to the list. Uh, even just a rating is awesome. You can drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Yeah, we spent days coming up with that one. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, uh, we're also on Twitter at writers podcast. Now, friends, you're jazzed. You're pumped. Your, your brains are sparking on all 12 cylinders. Uh, uh, I assume it's 12. It might be 24. I don't know. But... The good news is, is that in just a couple of days, we're going to have Lauren back and we're going to workshop an awesome story. So please, please set your calendars and come back for that. But that's, wow, there's still a couple of days to go. Ryan, what are you thinking, bud? What should they be doing between now and then? Ordinarily, I'd take this opportunity to say, stay hydrated. But I think instead, I'm going to suggest they work on the plot a bit. Let's <laughs> plot it out. Friends, this is a transformative moment. Holy yeah. crap. Ryan <laughs> is eschewing the hydration in favor of working on plot. Dude, I, I'm <laughs> I'm wiping a tear. This is a beautiful moment. I, I need to collect myself. Just the chrysalis, man. I got butterfly wings. <laughs> God, now there's a disturbing image. <laughs> I know Brian would admonish everyone to go right, and I will tell you, dear friends, that you find what you're looking for. It's so true and happens so many times. So if you look for wow, look for oh yeah, baby, I promise you it is out there and you will find it. We will see you in a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast, or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.